Uh, okay, great. Let's uh, turn in our Bibles to James, uh, James chapter 1. Here's what God's word says to us today. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. I'm sorry, I didn't say this is verse 13, James 1, 13. Forgive me. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom... There is no variation or shadow due to change. Lord Jesus, we pray that we would see ourselves all, even me here today, as learners in your classroom. Lord, that you would teach us, not just that our minds would understand the concepts, but that our hearts would embrace the truths that you want to impart to us today. Lord, give us um, hearts that... Um, are like the soil mentioned in the New Testament that's ready to receive your word. God, help us to just be eager and, and moist, ready to receive your word as you, as you implant it in us, God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I'm just, uh, for brevity today, we've got quite a few things to do today, but I'm just going to dive right into the text and walk through verse by verse. So verse 13, look there. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. What I really want to do today, we've already actually talked about this text. In the very first uh, sermon on this series, we talked about the temptation of Jesus, and I unpacked for you the difference between inner temptation and outer temptation, and we talked about this text kind of a lot that day. And so I don't want to, uh, to hammer on that, but I did want to go back to one issue from the text, and I want to talk about the difference between trials and temptations. We sort of just swept over that kind of briefly, but I want to go a little deeper into it today so we understand it. Now, the first thing I want you to understand about the difference in trials and temptations is that really there's not much of a difference. Uh, the reason I say that is because the Greek word translated trial and the word translated temptation are the same word simply in different tenses. So in English, trial and temptation are two different words that mean two pretty different things, but in Greek, they're not. They're the same word in different tenses. So, uh, so that's important to understand because almost always when we're talking about Greek and English translation, I'm all, we're almost always saying to you, Greek is a more exact language than, than English, and so um, you might have uh, one English word like love and three Greek words, like, you, you know, the, the story. Uh, this is the opposite in this case. In this case, it's the opposite. We've got two English words, but only one Greek word, really indicating to us that at the heart, trials and temptations are sort of the same thing. 
So they're pr two pretty different words, and the, uh, their implications and meanings in English, and, and, and the Greek idea would cover all of those. Uh, and, and Greek, in this case, is, is the same root, just a different tense. And so what I, what I want you to see is that the Greek word for trial is pyrosmos. The Greek word for trial is parasmus, and the Greek word for temptation is uh, pyrodza, pyrodza. I'm not a Greek scholar by any stretch of the imagination. I had to listen to somebody pronounce it online over and over to even be able to do that for you today, okay? But just to understand that these two words, you notice the pi in the beginning of both of those, it's the same, it's the same root word. Both uh, trials and temptations have the same root. This simple, it's the simple idea, the pie idea is the simple idea of a quality check or a test, a test. And so the idea of a quality check or a test, what James, the author here, is attempting to explain to you and me is that the giver of such a quality test can give a test with one of two types of motives. This is where the differentiation becomes between trials and temptations. Um, uh, the only difference is the motive of the test giver. Okay, so we see that in um, in uh, temptations, the test giver is Satan to make things simple, and his motive is to trip us up. In trials, the giver, or maybe not the giver, but the allower is God, and he gives it to us to strengthen our faith and make us ready to withstand temptation later. So you see how those two things work together. Satan, uh, so, so God is like a good teacher with an aim toward growth and protection and prosperity. Not only does this teacher test us, but before the test, the teacher does what a good teacher does, and it works with us to help us understand the concept so that we're ready when we get the test. Uh, and, and the teacher works with us with, uh, and helps us to understand before issuing the test to confirm our readiness for the test. But Satan, like a highway patrolman with a ticket quota, he's given us no instruction. He's given us no teaching. He's given us no warning. He's hoping. He's hoping so that he can just get back to the office, fill out his paperwork, and go home. He's hoping that will zip across his radar at 57 and a 45. You see how he's rooting for our demise and the teacher is rooting for our good. That is the real core difference between trials and temptations. You see, the difference is motive, the motive of the one who issues the test. And when James says God tempts no one, he's essentially saying when God gives a test, it is intended for your good and he's rooting for you to pass. That's what we learn in this text today. That's the big idea here is that when God allows, permits a trial into our lives, something that's uncomfortable and difficult, he does it for our benefit and our good. And all the while, he's walking with us in it and promoting our success in it. So I want to give you 12 simple ways, just briefly, 12 simple ways that you can know that God's trials, the trials God permits into your life are for your good the first way you can know that is right there in verse 2 of this, this whole uh, passage of James chapter 1. It says, uh, we are to welcome trials with joy. Well, why would we welcome trials with joy if they're for our, our, our demise? Yeah, thank you, Terrence. 
<laughs> Why would we welcome trials with good if they're for our demise? Like a prepared student, we are to see the test dropped on our desk as a gift that will issue assurance to us and everyone around us of our preparedness for true temptation. So the first thing we see is that we're just to welcome trials with joy. That is an indication to us that trials are for our good. The second thing to see is that trials produce steadfastness. That's what James says right there in the beginning of, of the passage. He says trials produce steadfastness. A steadfastness is uh, desperately needed in our lives if we're going to cling to God. We need to stay put close to God's word, close to God's precepts, close to God's principles. If we wander away from that, we won't be able to withhold the temptation of the devil. So a steadfastness is desperately needed in our lives. Not long ago, I texted a friend of mine who was going through a really, really difficult time. Probably one of the hardest things I've ever seen a friend go through, aside from sort of a death or something like that. Just, just emotional pressure on this friend. And, and um, I, I texted him and expressed my sorrow over what he's going through. And is there any way I can help? You know what you do in times like that. You just try your best. But there's really not a lot you can do. And so I, I did that through text. Uh, you know, I was partially thinking, I don't even want to bother him with this. But I do want to let him know that I, I care about him. And, and he responded in this way. And it was so striking to me. He said, it's been a challenging time for sure. He said, I'm really weary. But God is so gracious. And God's word is so good. I can truly say that I know him more, I love him more, I love his word more, and I trust him more than I did a month ago or a year ago. So if he's the goal, these are great days. Whoa, what a perspective, right? If God is the goal, these trials are so good because they are constantly pressing me into the Jesus I so need. Trials lead us to maturity and wholeness and help us achieve what verse 4 calls perfection. Now, don't see perfection in the way we think about it, but think of it as completeness. So trials lead to maturity and wholeness and help us achieve what the passage in verse 4 calls perfection, meaning a fully operational Christian life, meaning we're, we're firing on all cylinders in terms of our Christian faith. We are doing the right thing. We're responding to difficulty, trials, and temptations the right way. And we're firing on all cylinders. That is completeness. It's not perfection, but it's the right response, the Godward response to difficulty, trials, tribulation, and stress in our lives. Perfect and complete is the idea. It's the, it's the idea that the maturation process that we have understood and we've partaken in, that it has, it has reached its intended goal. We have embraced the reality that we were meant to embrace. That's what, we're, that's what, we are, uh, that's what trials do for us. They, they assure for us that we have done that. So in that way, they are a very good thing. Next thing I want you to see is that trials produce faith. Difficulty trials in our lives produce faith. So we know that they're good. We know that they're from God because they produce faith. Satan would never bring something into our life that is good for us and produces faith in us. In the midst of trial, we are forced to go one way or another. I remember when I was in school, I, was always, uh, I always asked the question, when a test was given, I always asked the question, is an incomplete or a skipped answer marked wrong? 
which you probably say, yeah, 99% of the time it's going to be marked wrong. But I always want to make sure because I'd skip a lot more questions and not answer a lot more questions if I could get my average on only the questions answered. I would only answer the ones I was quite sure of. Trials produce faith in us. Trials next also create an occasion for us to trust God. It's the dark backdrop of difficulty that the light of Jesus' goodness shines the brightest. Trials create the occasion for us to trust in God. If there were no trials in our life, we would never have to trust in the Lord. We would never have to show the power of God's salvation in our lives. We could just sort of exist on our own power. But trials become this wonderful stage for us to display the generosity, kindness, benevolence of God to everyone around us and to assure our own hearts of the reality of God's existence. Because without trials, we might start to think God's not even there. We, we just are living this life on our own resources and we don't really need God. Why is it that Christian joy is so zapped by prosperity? Why is it that Christian joy is so, so, um, so robust in difficulty? Well, it's this exact idea. Trials create the occasion for us to trust in God. My friend Yoman in Indonesia, oh, like over the years that I have known him, the occasions he has had to trust God have far outweighed the occasions I've had to trust God. He was kicked out of his village and excommunicated from his family when he trusted in Jesus. He lost his class. You know, it's a class society, a caste society. He, he lost his, his caste. He essentially became the rubbish of the earth, humanly speaking. And he began to build his life on Christ from that. And I had to simply watch him do it from my comfortable perch in the United States. Trials in him created an occasion for him to trust God. What happens when difficulty comes into your life? There's usually one of four responses. Let me give these to you real quickly. One of four responses to when trials come into our life, we either want to fix it. Some of us want to do that. The dude's here. We're just going to fix it. Some, th some difficulty comes into our life. We've got to get that difficulty out of our life as quick as possible by fixing it. Whatever it takes, whatever we have to do, whatever we have to adjust, whatever we have to lose, so that problem isn't here anymore, let's get rid of that thing. But the Christian response to trial is to embrace it. Say, this trial is meant for my good. God is working out a thing in me, so when I'm working to get rid of that thing, he's working in me, I'm working against him. So our response is to fix it. A second response is, is to fight it. To fight it. Just, just to bow up against the trial, to fight it, not to receive the work that, that it is meant to bring in our life. And then some of us, some of us just want to forget it. We just wish that it didn't happen, so we inoculate ourselves with drugs or alcohol or pleasure in order to forget the difficulty we're going through. Is your response to trial to reach for a glass of wine before it is to reach for the word that will sustain and build you? I mean, I'm not here to criticize you for reaching for a glass of wine, but if it is the way you cope, you are missing the very gift God's trying to give you. 
So we try to fix it, we try to fight it, we try to forget it, and, and what we should really do is we should try to forward it. <laughs> it's my favorite function on email, forward. This is, it's, like, it's like a built-in button for delegation. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. I mean, I get an email and I think, who else could do this thing I've been told to do? Ford to Carrie Julian. Ford to Cody Davis. That's what I think when something comes across the email that we really don't, uh, that, that, that I get to do. In, in this, we get to forward this to the Father. We get to forward our trials, our difficulty, our distresses to the Father. Cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you, right? What does it mean for the Christian to cast all his cares upon him because he cares for us? It means that when he brings trials in our life, we're supposed to bring them right back to him. That is so good. That is so good. But what we do is we bring the trials in our life and we, we, we try to fix it. We put our hands on it. We hyper-focus on it. We try, to, we try to fight it. We punch it in the head until it's dead. We try to just forget it. We close our eyes, we stick our head in the sand, we drink our glass of wine, and we forget it. Really, what God just wants us to do is to take it and give it right back to him. Trials, next, provide an occasion for God to provide for us, thus eliciting confidence in his care. So trials provide this occasion for us to, to, uh, to allow God to provide for us. As you said, when I afford it, I give it back to him, and then it provides this occasion where, where God and I are in communion over my difficulty. Where I'm receiving from God and I'm giving to God. And, and I'm getting from God and, and he's getting from me. And we're in communion together. So in so much as my friend said, this trial has been great because it has caused me to be in communion with God. And I have received the, the fruit of communion, close communion with God that I did not receive when I was not in this trial, so can we say back to God that the occasion has provided for us to interact with the Almighty. Trials, next, cause us to acknowledge our need for Christ. There's no way to go through a trial without sort of fixing it, fighting it, or forgetting it. There's no way to go through a trial without and properly forwarded onto him without just sort of acknowledging our dependence upon him. There's sort of two reasons to forward an email, right? There's, there's one, the one reason is to get it off your, your deck. The other reason is because you want to solve it, but you don't have the means to solve it. You can't do it in your own power. You need someone else. And so this is the sense in which we should forward our trials and temptations and difficulties onto Christ. Trials cause us to acknowledge our need for Christ. Next, trials give us confidence in God by providing an opportunity to prove our faith. Just in the way a test is intended to do, trials give us confidence in God by providing us an opportunity to prove our faith. Now, I was not a good student. I, I barely, uh, barely got out of middle school. Um, I became a Christian between middle school and high school, and I got sort of a, a renewed vigor for trying to, uh, to learn things. And I did okay in high school. I was a, a strong, strong C-minus student in high school. And then I, I like to tell people I graduated in the top five in my class, which is totally true, although there were only six in my class. Uh, and uh, so, so I, I got through, and I just barely got into college, and I just barely squeaked through college, and then I just barely got into graduate school, and I just barely squeaked through graduate school, and I said, okay, I've, I've done quite enough. But, but academically, I was never the sharpest uh, tool in the toolbox. But I, 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 I was able, in all of that, uh, to have my, my confidence in God uh, uh, built 
because he was consistently providing for me even though I felt weak. And there was never an occasion where there was like a test dropped in front of me that I was like, I got this. This is going to be no problem. I'm completely confident that I know all the answers on this test. I was not that person. But what we do when we commune with God and we know what he wants of our lives and where our hearts are given over to say yes to him, when the test or the trial is dropped in front of us, we respond in the same way Jesus responded to trials and temptations, with his word and with confidence in his heart that God would uphold him when he stood with God. Blessing is promised next to those who remain steadfast over, uh, under, uh, under trial. So we know, we know that trials are for our good because God promises uh, that blessings will come to those who remain steadfast under trial. When trials come and we remain steadfast, there is a, a, there is a reward on the side of that, a blessing on the side of that. It may not be a monetary reward or a physical reward, but it is a real reward. It's a blessing. It brings about happiness and joy and fulfillment in this life uh, to know that we have wrestled with the Lord and the Lord has aided us in our overcoming temptation and trial. And next, God promises and gives the crown of life to those who endure trial. So I don't know what the crown of life is exactly. We could speculate a little bit about what that crown of life is, but it's a good thing, right? Can we at least agree upon that? The crown of life is something that God wants to give to us, and it, it seems like a pretty good thing. And so God's not going to give us the crown of life um, in order to harm us or hurt us. This is something that he wants for our good. God promises to give the crown of life to those who endure trials. It's right there in the text. And then last, I want you to see that trials provide an occasion for God to come through with his previous promises. So God's word is full of promises to us. If we act in this way, he will act in that, that way. Regardless of what we do, he will act in this way. We get these promises about God, his nature, his character. We get to see those promises come alive in the midst of trial and temptation. So those are, those are sort of 12 simple ideas that you can know that God's motives in your testing are good motives. So why do I tell you that? Why? Well, because I want you to see that trials and temptations, biblically speaking, are two sides of the same coin. And what difference, uh, differentiates them is only the motive of the giver. The passage makes it clear that God's never the source of temptation. It says that explicitly, clearly in the text, right? It says God is not the, the source of temptation. He does not try to get us to sin. He himself does not tempt anyone. He's always rooting for our victory over sin. You, like me, probably know someone who once walked with God and who is now turned away from him after a time of trial or tragedy or severe struggle in their life. Our faith, uh, weak and untested, can lead us to conclude that God is not good. And in our conclusion that God is not good, to turn away from him. And, and he, it, it can cause us to believe that his intentions for us aren't good and, and that he is actually out there rooting for our failure, that God is actually against us. In the same way that, the, uh, that Satan undermined uh, Adam and Eve in the garden by asking, is God did God really say that? We are, there's undermining going on all around us for people to cause us to call into question the goodness of our God. Yet all we know of him is that he is our defender, he is our father, and all of his actions toward us have, are, are loving all the time. 
Temptations, on the other hand, have a sinister origin. That is, the giver of the test is rooting for us to fail. So let me tell you how you can determine if what you're facing is a trial uh, allowed by God for your good and for his glory, or if it's a temptation issued by Satan to entrap you. Is it a, a trial brought about in your life by God for your good, or is it a temptation by Satan meant to entrap you? In other words, here's how you can differentiate between a trial and a temptation. It's a temptation, not a trial, when there is, and here it is, an explicit or an implicit command from God to avoid it, the very thing that you're tempted with. So God's word actually is the thing that helps us understand or differentiate if it is a trial or a temptation. If God's word tells us explicitly or implicitly that something is wrong in God's sight and we accept it as right in our sight, we are falling prey to temptation. So let's not overcomplicate the matter. Now, some of you know and have heard that I've been learning to fly. I've always wanted to fly since I was a kid. And something about COVID and my midlife crisis, I'm not sure what the algorithm was that caused this. But, but I, just, I just wanted to start to learn to fly. I actually learned that, you know, there's medical clearances. And once you get about 60, it's kind of hard to pass those medical clearances. And I'm like 42. And I'm like, I'm never going to do this if I don't just do it. And so I started learning to, to fly. And uh, one, uh, th there are a lot of things I didn't know about flying that I've been learning, and all these spiritual realities are popping all around me in, in, the, in the process of learning to fly. Well, one of the things uh, is that you do this thing when you're learning to fly called an, an engine out landing. You try to do it, you know, learn to land the plane with no engine, uh, which is, you know, seems like it could be hard, right? Uh, <laughs> so what happens is you go up, and, and then all of a sudden the, uh, the instructor you know, kills the engine. And then you have to go through this checklist immediately, like have to go into this checklist of the things you have to do to order to get that ground, uh, that, that plane on the ground safely. And it's terrifying. It's terrifying. Even though I know we can turn it back on and all of that, it's, it's terrifying. Uh, and, and so you have, to, you have to do all these things. But why, my instructor Cody, why does he do that to me? Why does he put me through that, that trial, that drama? Well, he does it because there's a very good chance that at some point in the future, my engine could stop working. And he wants me to be prepared for that. He wants me to be able to land the plane safely so I don't die. And so I, in that way, I kind of appreciate it, even though it brings a lot of stress and heartache in my life. But we can imagine a version of that that's more like temptation, right? Where Cody sneaks out in a sinister way and unplugs a wire or frays a wire that should be. He's kind of hoping I'll crash, right? So you see how the action is really the same. He's causing the engine to go out. So it's really the same thing, but the motive is different. And so I want you to see that the way you can tell the difference, is this from God, is this not from God? Is there an explicit command in God's word that he's given to us for our fruitfulness, for our prosperity, for our knowledge? The word of God has been given to us, 2 Timothy 3.17, uh, breathed out by God for our rebuke, correction, instruction, and righteousness that we may be thoroughly furnished, equipped for every good work that we might be complete in Christ. The reason he gave us his word is so we could be completed in Christ. And so in this matter, how can I tell if it's a trial or temptation? How can I tell if it's from God or Satan? Here's how you tell. Does God's word explicitly tell us that we should not partake in this thing? Sometimes as a pastor, uh, I've experienced this occasion 
where somebody will come in and they will, they will tell me that God has told them to do something that the Bible very clearly says they should not do. It, it's, sometimes it's, it's a little jarring to me how boldly people will claim that something that God explicitly said is way off limits is right in the middle of God's will for their lives. And so I have this, I have this, uh, this uh, while they're talking, I have this wrestling that goes on in my head. You know, I, I'm, I'm a man too, and I have worldly thoughts, and, and I'm just going to be honest with you, while the person's sitting there telling me this, I'm thinking, wow, this is going to be a way, way easier conversation. I'm going to get to dinner with my family way, way quicker if I just say, right on, man, do, do that, you know. But it wouldn't be very faithful, would it? <laughs> and, so, and so I have to say, you know, what, what you're telling me is in opposition to the clear teaching of God's word. And what's happened is you've equivocated and you've made all these reasons and excuses why your situation is so much different than the clear thing God taught us in his word. And sometimes as a pastor, you have this experience of having to contend with people for their own souls. Of saying, people go to their pastor, I think, for, for information when, when everything seems muddy and confusing. They thought they knew what was right, but then things got complicated. And so they need somebody to come, come clean with them about what's, what's simple, what's true. And verse 14 says that. He says, but each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. See the source again. It's It's us. We can't blame it on anybody else. The desire is there. We talked about in week one of this, this uh, series. We talked about in week one how, how no temptation is alluring in any way if we don't have a pre, prerequisite desire, if we don't have a pre-existing desire for that such thing. So we have a desire for evil. Our, our thoughts and intentions are evil. The heart of man is uh, de- uh, de- uh, evil and desperately wicked all the time. So we have this, uh, we have this evilness in our heart and and as a result, when evil is, is waved in front of us, it is enticing to us. We are lured to it. If there was no evil desires in us, we wouldn't want that thing. And so we're lured and enticed. The scripture teaches us here in verse 14 by our own desires. So the, the one you're really contending with is, is yourself. Then desire, when it's conceived, he tells us even the progression of it. It starts small. It's like just a desire. It's a desire that comes from an evil spot in our sinful nature. But when it's conceived, it gives birth to sin. So it starts with desire and it comes to sin. And then when it's fully grown, it kills us. It leads to death. So what must we know as followers of Jesus is that the evil that lives inside of us often masquerades as righteousness. It does so by attempting to call good what God calls evil. And by attempting to call evil what God calls good. This is the trick of Satan in our lives. To convince us that the very things that God calls evil are good and the very things that God calls good are evil. And the the world has become exceptional at convincing us even the redeemed sons and daughters of God, of being convinced that our Father is not looking out for us, that He's not rooting for us to pass the test with His commands and His statutes, but, but seeking to restrict and control us with His precepts. So we see the thing that actually will bring us true freedom, and we see them as constricting us or putting us in a prison of religious law. You see... 
the, the easiest way for you and me to justify our sin, the quickest escape hatch to tell everybody around us why it's okay that we're going to do this sinful thing, the quickest way for us to do that, to justify it, is to frame that sinful thing as a righteous thing. It doesn't matter that God calls your sin evil. We've been hurt. And and we are not only permitted to do that sin because of our hurt, but we are going to require that others around us laud us for the righteousness of doing that thing that God has called wicked and rejecting what God calls good. This is the kind of way of the world around us, and this is a path I... I I fear many Christians are tempted to go down. When God's word is explicit and clear, tells us exactly how we should live and and how we should act in regard to particular and individual sins and, and attitudes and actions of the heart. Very specific ways we should act and live that are in contrast to, they're almost 180 degrees different than the way the world tells us we should live and be. And for us to, and for us to uh, cause everyone around us to take the sinful thing we're doing and laud us for it as righteous is, is an evil in itself. This is what the wicked intent of man's heart does. So listen, it's not, it's not my intent or my desire to offend you or, or cause you to leave the church if, if you have found yourself in what I just said. If you have... Uh, if, you, if something's coming to mind and you say, boy, that's something that the Bible I know says is wrong, but I just do not agree with the Bible about that. You see yourself on an equal plane with God and his divinely revealed words, and you say, not the word of God is above me to interpret my life, but I'm above the word of God to interpret it. It's not my intent to offend you or to cause you to leave the church or to think we're critical or bigots or hellfire brimstone around here. It's not my intention to do that, but we have to be unambiguous about the acceptance of God's ways as a people, especially, especially in a world where it is so assaulted. We have to be a people that says, yeah, the world says this is the way, but we say, no, God says there's another way. Verse 16 warns us, don't be deceived. It's the main warning of the text. Don't be deceived. The reason it tells us that is because we are so easily deceived. Even as Christians, this is is written to Christians by a pastor who was Jesus' half-brother, inspired by the Holy Spirit. He says, don't be tricked. Don't be deceived. Every good and perfect gift is from above. The the gifts God gives you in trials and temptations and laws, those are good. They're from above. They bring about peace and righteousness and and joy. And those things that you think are going to bring about peace and righteousness and joy, they only lead to death. It reckons, it it recalls up uh, the words of the New Testament. Um, There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death or destruction. Listen, friends, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Your Father is giving you these things for your good. He's giving you these trials. He's giving you these tests for your good. And with whom? In Christ, in God, there is, the passage says, no variation, 
No shadow due to change. This is what we know about God. The culture will change. The culture has changed. And the culture will change again. But there is no variation in the laws of God. We might see this book as antiquated and out of date, but out of date means stable. It's stable. It, we live in a world of unhinged self-centeredness. Our life is at the center of the universe and everything is relative to that and orbits around that. And God's word is the only thing we have to go to that will give us some standard of truth to live by. And so if you have been the kind of person that says, I just don't know about some of that stuff the Bible says, I think I'm qualified to determine what of it I should adhere to and what I should not. Just, I just urge you, I think you're on very dangerous ground. I think you have fallen to the very temptation, the very prey. You, you've become the very prey that, that, the, uh, that the lion is seeking to devour. So here's the distinction according to the Bible. Temptations are opportunities to obey self and please self, and trials are opportunities to obey God and please Him. Temptations find their end in death and destruction. Trials find their end in fulfillment of promises from God. Temptations are deceptive, but trials are full of God's promises. Temptations are never from God. Trials are often from God. Temptation originates with a sinister intent, and trials originate with a righteous aim. Temptation leaves you empty. Trials bring you to completeness, fulfillment, and wholeness. Temptations seek to break you down while trials seek to build you up. Temptations lure you away while trials keep you steadfast. So here's the application. Since the fall of man, the nature of man is that the, it is at its core selfish and self-destructive. The only antidote for our self-destructive, sinful nature is the statutes of God. We are biased toward evil like a car in need of alignment. We're just veering always to that one side in the direction of evil. And without, without corrective pressure on the other side of the wheel, the corrective pressure of God's Word Pulling down on the other side of the wheel, we will run off into the woods. The very best thing you can do for yourself spiritually is to become deeply suspicious of your own desires. To scrutinize your actions and your attitudes in light of God and His Word. How do I do that? Well, you scrutinize your attitudes and actions in light of His Word. You become deeply suspicious of your own desires when... You stay in constant communion with the plumb line of God's word. That I am in his word. I know what it says. You, you just think of sheer hours of the day. The amount in which you are influenced by the world. And how much, how much control pressure on the other side of the wheel it's going to take. From God's word. To, just, just to counteract to keep you on the, on the road got to be in God's Word. We've got to understand what He's saying. We've got to dedicate ourselves in creative ways to knowing Him. Like, coming to church is actually part of that equation. Like, you could have done something else this morning that would have not caused you to think about sin and temptation. 
But you came here, and now you're going to think about it, I, I hope. That's a good thing. The, uh, I mean, even coming to church is sort of on trial these days. Like, come to church so you hear the word so that you are at least, at least someone's contending with the worldliness that you're being bombarded with all day long, every day. So come and hear God's word. Like, read the Bible by yourself at your house. In your, I mean, it's never been easier to read the Bible. Holy smokes. I mean, the people will read the Bible to you on your telephone. It's on XM Radio. Like, you can, you can get the Bible anywhere. Like, just turn it on. Like, I, I'm a sucker. I know this is terrible. You're probably going to judge me and send me emails. I'm a sucker for Ellen. Oh, I love Ellen. Uh, those, those clips are so funny, uh, so funny. But I find myself on the Internet, like, Ellen or the Word, Ellen or the Word. That's uh, crazy. That's crazy. Why am I struggling between Ellen and the Word? Like, Ellen is ridiculous. Like, I, it, but it is real. And so... So I, I just, I just want to urge us, like, we need the corrective pressure on the other side of the wheel. It's not just about, uh, about if it would be good for me to do this or not. It's actually vital to me not veering into the woods. We stay in constant co- communion with the plumb line of God's word. We put ourselves around people who are going to spur us to live and love in God's word. We get to choose who we spend time with. I love, somebody who just told me this week, we were talking about social media, and they said, you know, you can't control what people say on social media, but control who you follow. And that hit me, that hit me in a way that I had never been hit. Like, you know what? I follow all those people that say all that crazy stuff. Like, I can just stop following those people, and I can listen to people that say godly things. Like, that is, like, I mean, it was a little bit mind-blowing to me. It's not as fun, though. I mean, I like a little controversy. uh, But it's better for me. We limit our access to, we do it with our kids, don't we? Uh, all day long, we're going to limit their access to things we think are going to be bad for them. But for ourselves, no, gloves are off. We, we're wise enough to discern, right? No. And last, we orient ourselves in a family of faith, complete with concentric circles of closeness. Here's what I mean by that. We orient ourselves in a family of faith just like this, complete with concentric circles of closeness. What I mean is, you're going to have all of us in some way. We're all brothers and sisters of Christ. We're going to be helping each other. I don't even know all your names. I'm sorry. I wish I did. I don't. Uh, you don't know one another's names. You probably don't even know the names of the people on your very row. Uh, but, but we have a, a certain responsibility to one another. But, but there, is, there is another set of responsibilities we can have to a smaller group of people. And today, you're going to hear as we transition, we are going to be talking about small groups. And you're saying, like, why are we putting so much emphasis on small groups? That's what we're going to hear for the rest of the service today. Why are we doing that so much? Because this is your best chance. This is your best chance not to veer into the woods. These relationships, the people you really get to know, that really get to know you, that will be able to notice the inconsistencies, the difficulties, the sins, the trials, the temptations, the proclivities of your life, those are the very best defense you have against sin and temptation. And so you may not know those people, but I want to urge you to get in a small group so that you can, you can connect with somebody. It's not about our church. It's not about our small group ministry growing. It's about you being able to contend with the worldliness that's all around you. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to talk about small groups um, just a little bit. I, actually, before we talk about small groups, I believe we're going to take communion. Am I right about that? Okay, great. Thank you. Uh, we're going to take communion, and then we're going to talk about small groups. Lord Jesus, we love you. We need you so much. Your word is so good for us. It's like food. If we don't partake in it, we just aren't nourished. We just shrivel up. So, God, we need you. Please give us your word. Give us your, your heart. Give us yourself. Help us to, 
uh, love and, and embrace you as, you as you draw us into obedience, as you try to deliver fulfillment and joy in our lives. God, we, we love you. God, this, this meal that we're going to partake in, this um, communion that we're going to have, this is a way of us depicting, saying back to you again that we receive you. And we, for most of us, we received you a long time ago. But day to day we wake up and we're prone to crawl off the altar of sacrifice that we, that we once laid ourselves on. And so we say to you again, Lord, we love you. Lord, we trust in you. Lord, we, we receive you. And we pray that you would hear that and see that, not just in our, in our physical action of taking the bread and the cup, but in the posture of our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.